Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The two of you who are working silently behind the scenes to fight these criminal elements. What law enforcement does is we try to encourage people to be participants. They literally walk in and pat you down. And they literally missed the wire that day. While there's somebody on the front porch pitching COVID-19 insurance, there's somebody at the back door breaking into the damn house. Well, this is Dr. Phil, and you have found your way to fill in the blanks, and I have what is clearly a very exciting episode for me for a couple of reasons. You guys know how big a supporter I am of law enforcement. It's been said many times that you cut Dr. Phil and he bleeds blue, and there is Nothing I'm prouder to confirm. I stand behind the men and women in uniform, those from coast to coast and border to border that stand in the gap to keep all of us safe. One of the programs I'm most proud of on Dr. Phil is the program we call Behind the Badge, where we talk to the men and women who do wear the uniforms, who do stand behind the badges. And I have two people joining us today that I think you are going to absolutely be fascinated by. One of them is a very good personal friend of mine. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and the other guests before I let them speak. The guest that is a good friend of mine that I've known for a number of years and have worked with on a number of occasions is George Mueller. Now, George has currently been appointed as the Deputy Commissioner of the Enforcement Branch of the California Department of Insurance. Now, this is a fraud division that investigates suspected fraud committed by consumers or organized criminal elements perpetrated against insurance companies. Now, George is a cop. He served as Assistant Chief and Bureau of Investigation for Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, and that's where I met him here. And as assistant chief, he oversaw complex criminal investigations in automobile insurance fraud, workers' comp, health care, elder abuse, public corruption, organized crime. He's been undercover. He's done it all. He served as president of the California District Attorney and Investigators Association. He's really done it all. And he and I have spoken before. We've done a lot of different things together, and he's helped me investigate a lot of different things. He has an interesting partner with him today. He has brought with him a professional concert harpist, a soloist, an ensemble member that's performed throughout the country. She's performed on The Young and Restless as a member of the orchestra with Doc Severinsen, Tony Bennett, Loretta Lynn just a really accomplished musician in such a fine and delicate art. She also 
is a 31-year veteran of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, currently serving as the head deputy of the Norwalk branch after seven years heading the Healthcare Insurance Fraud Division. She served more than 12 years in the Public Integrity Division, where, among other duties, she headed the team of prosecutors that brought down the Bell City officials that were perpetrating one of the biggest frauds on the state out here in California that you've probably heard about. She's prosecuted public officials for fraud, perjury, misappropriation of funds, scores of criminal cases, dozens of gang-related homicides, public corruption crimes. She's collaborated on a joint FBI and LAPD task force. George describes her as, well, the best DA there is. I'm talking about George Mueller and Jennifer Lentz Snyder. So thank you both for being here. I just cannot wait to talk to the two of you. George, Jennifer, thank you for joining me today. George, let me start with you. How are you doing? I am doing well, Dr. Phil. Thanks for having me on again. It's always a pleasure to see you and uh, I look forward to having dinner with you soon. I miss you. Well, we're going to have to get out of this pretty soon. So, Jennifer, tell me, how long have you known George? Oh, far too many years to count, Dr. Phil. (laughs) I'll bet that's right. George and I go back into the 90s when I was working gangs, and um, he was working special ops. And uh, we spent a lot of time chasing after some pretty renowned bad guys, including Suge Knight and uh, Geronimo Pratt. And uh, then George went into fraud and because George is the smarter one of the two of us, I followed him. So I've been doing fraud since 2000, and George started a little bit before me, and our paths keep crossing, and we keep getting some pretty good outcomes. Yes, you certainly do, because I've studied both of you a lot. And Jennifer, let me ask you something. You have a such a storied history in law enforcement and as a prosecutor. How does that happen? How did you wind up as a prosecutor and what is it about it that intrigued you so much? It's a, it's a fabulous question. Thanks for asking. Uh, my story is really a perfect example of one act can change a person's life. So I was out in Las Vegas uh, making a lot of money, uh, playing the harp for a whole lot of really, really fabulous entertainers. And at some point, I thought my brain had atrophied. Uh, between that and the advent of the synthesizer, I thought I had to come up with a plan B. So I started at law school. And while I was at law school, I thought, well, I'll stay in the entertainment industry. Um, And then I met the entertainment industry lawyers, and that really wasn't my cup of tea. So I started doing moot courts, which were very much like the theater, very performance-oriented, how to tell stories to people, but they're real stories about what really happens. And I came across a judge named Mike Tynan. And Judge Tynan was at the time presiding over the Night Stalker trial, Richard Ramirez, a man who terrorized Los Angeles County for years. And he wrote a letter and said, I want you to stop and reconsider your career choices. And if you ever think about coming into public service, come talk to me. And I got that letter out of my mailbox at Pepperdine Law School. I called him. I went and watched. And something really resonated for me because it was a combination of real theater and community service and getting to do the right thing for the right reason every day. And that was 1987. Wow. Two years later, I became a deputy DA, and I haven't looked back. It is the best job in the law. It is the best way to assist communities that are in need. 
it keeps you intellectually stimulated and you work with great people like George. I mean, it just doesn't get any better. Yeah. So tell me about this Night Stalker situation, because for people that don't know, and both of you just jump in, because I know this was a major, major thing, but describe that situation for us. Well, Richard Ramirez was a serial killer who sexually assaulted and and maimed and tortured, particularly women, for a period of many, many months. So badly that in the middle of July, with no air conditioning, people slept with their windows and doors locked because they were terrified that this assailant was going to come in and kill them. And I don't remember the total number of people he killed, but I believe it was in the double digits. And the case itself was unusual and more heinous than virtually any other case that we had seen uh, because of how he executed his crimes. And also the public was really intrigued because it was the first televised court trial. So there were actually cameras in the courtroom and this was a really unusual circumstance back in the day. It impacted how people behaved, including Ramirez. Ultimately, the jury returned a verdict of death as to Mr. Ramirez. He went to San Quentin and um, he died of natural causes a few years ago. But the case itself was fraught with all kinds of legal issues uh, and people were interested because they had been so terrorized by the fear of the Night Stalker. It was really, at its in its day, the most compelling and frightening set of circumstances that anybody had seen. And were you involved in the investigation of it more or the prosecution of it more? I was merely a spectator, but I got to know the people that were involved. And that is what caused me to pursue prosecution when I got out of law school. I actually got hired first by the public defender's office, uh, but through a series of circumstances and at Judge Tynan's suggestion, he felt that I'd be better driving the car than being a passenger in the car. So I became a prosecutor instead of a defense attorney. But in my mind, people on both sides of the bar have to have the same interests at heart. Right. You know, George, you described Jennifer as, in your opinion, the best DA out there. Why do you say that? Because of her passion for the job, because she really wants to protect the consumer and, and protect the citizens of LA County and also the state of California. I've never met somebody who will sit down with you and is your partner when doing these types of cases. She will walk you through it. She'll ask you the tough questions. She's going to be very transparent with you what she wants done. And then when she gets in the courtroom, she's probably one of the most articulate professionals I've ever seen at presenting a case and telling a story. And that story is protected again the consumers. She is hands down, and I'm so fortunate that I've been able to work with her for so many years, one of the best prosecutors in California, if not in the country. And if you want me to elaborate a little bit on, on um, the Night Stalker case, Richard Ramirez, I actually got to track down some of the witnesses on that case, if you want me to elaborate. I do. I want to know about that. So I had just left a local police department where I was born and raised, city of Alhambra, and I had gone over to the district attorney's office and coming from a small city of about 100,000 residents, going to a county of over 10 million people at the time. It was kind of overwhelming at first, and I had started there in 1985, and they wanted me to go out and track down witnesses on the Night Stalker in support of the prosecution team. And I remember going to one of the families in Arcadia, where Richard Ramirez had broken in, 
and how bad it was where he had actually cut these people and taken their blood and written their names or written type of satanic things on the walls of their house. I remember sitting in the courtroom with them was also, and if there was ever the devil, if you wanted to see a picture of the devil, Richard Ramirez was that devil. You could look into his eyes and see this blank stare. And being a law enforcement, Dr. Phil, not much scares me, but that individual scared the hell out of me. Looking at him and seeing how he looked at you, he was the true devil. George is absolutely right, Dr. Phil. I had the opportunity to be in court when Richard Ramirez's mother was there, and he bore a very strong resemblance to his mom. When you looked in the mom's eyes, you saw warmth and humanity. And when you looked into Richard Ramirez's eyes, his eyes were almost reptilian. There was absolutely no humanity. It was, it was really bone chilling. It's so strange when you can look at a mother and you see one thing in her eyes and something else in her son, and that's the psychological aspect of this. There's something, of course, it's not just her DNA, and there's nature, nurture, there's what you get DNA-wise and what people experience in life and how their environment impacts them, but that's a big leap to go from someone you say that has compassion and carrying in their eyes to someone that's the actual embodiment of evil, their own child. What the hell happens is the big question. And that's something that has intrigued me in my career that's fascinated me about how someone can go from a caring mother to becoming the devil incarnate, walking the earth, doing the things that this person did. And when you watch a jury watch someone like this, it actually changes someone that sits on a jury that has to spend time, a judge that has to spend time, prosecutors that has to spend time with people like that. It changes who they are. Absolutely. You guys have dealt with gang members as well. And, you know, I've had gang members on the show that are reformed, and there's a disconnect with the public that does not understand how strong the connection is among these gang members that law enforcement has to come up against. And y'all have had to deal with that, but there truly is a bond among these gang members that y'all have to go up against. And that connection, however misguided, is very real. True? Absolutely. It, the gang replaces the family. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind, Dr. Phil, that most of these gang members go to become parts of a gang because of the breakdown of a familial structure. You know, plants don't grow sometimes unless you give them a trellis. And a child isn't going to grow up if it doesn't have guidance. And a lot of these kids find their guidance. They find their structure in the gang that exists and the power that a gang yields. So if you want to get into the mind of a gangster, you got to understand that their values are the gang's values, which may be very different than anybody else's, but it is what they feel they belong to. And those bonds are nearly indestructible. Yeah, They just have nowhere else to turn. I, you know, as, as I've talked to some of these gang members that are now out of it and are reformed, they tell me that as misguided as it is, and as much as they do the things that they shouldn't do, commit the crimes that they commit, that their love, their bond, their connection, their loyalty runs deep and it is real because they feel there's nowhere else they fit. And I've always said the number one need in all people is acceptance, belongingness. And the gangs provide that for these kids that have it from nowhere else. And 
it's seductive, it's mesmerizing to them. And so when people look at that, they don't understand why these kids would go do this because they get that need met nowhere else. And it's hard to crack that. It's hard to get them to turn on each other once you deal with it. And I don't know how you do it, but I know sometimes it happens. And then once they get into prison, it's a matter of survival, right? At that point, they do it just to stay alive once they get in prison. True enough. You know, it's interesting how um, now the power is coming down back to the county from at least our state prisons. And it's been that way for some time. George can talk about that much better than I. But, you know, when we worked on the witness protection program several decades ago, it was it was bizarre to me that we didn't have something in place already. And the good news now is we do have the means by which to help break those cycles. But those those bonds are still really tight. And a lot of the activity has gone underground. And it's my observation that that's making it even harder for law enforcement to have an impact and to break those chains and, and to get people to find their way out. Well, one of the things that I know very clearly is you've got to offer them a viable alternative. If you want them to not remain loyal to this dysfunctional connection they have with gangs. You've got to offer them somewhere else to belong, somewhere else to be, somewhere else that they can feel like they have a meaningful role. And I do see progress being made in those regards. But if you don't offer them a viable alternative, it's never going to happen. And, you know, street crime is one thing, and both of you guys have had a lot of experience in that. And some of the high-profile cases, you know, my listeners would Never forgive me if I didn't ask you guys to talk about some of your most interesting and high-profile cases before we talk about the fraud aspect of it, which is so intriguing as well. But you mentioned Suge Knight, for example. Talk about that case and what was involved in that investigation and prosecution. I'll I'll let you start, Jen. That was your case. Well, Bill Hodgman, who was also part of the OJ team, was my boss at the time, and um, Suge Knight was involved in a series of probation violations for some uh, existing crimes that he'd been convicted of. And uh, it was a really, really difficult set of circumstances, but Bill and me and a team of investigators that George led went out and got the information that was necessary that in many ways was a precursor to some of the criminal behavior that we saw in the ensuing decades. So Dr. Phil, when you talk about how these behaviors begin and continue, that's a perfect example of somebody who had a huge amount of power, a lot of money, a lot of success in a commercial sense, but couldn't get himself away from the street element. And as a result, his empire fell apart and he finds himself in prison. You know, that's kind of the untold story of what happens in the gang life. A lot of these gang members are only glorified when they die. Here's somebody who was a leader, a, a kingpin, if you will. And he couldn't get out of the very activities that caused his downfall despite wealth, despite power. And that to me was part of what we saw and what continued for a number of years. George and his investigators actually had to go out on the street and convince people to come in and testify. And that in in and of itself was an extraordinary task. And they did a fabulous job of it. And that's true. Trying to find witnesses, Dr. Phil, on gang cases is one of the most difficult things to do. 
And what do you find when you go out and try to get somebody to testify against someone like Suge Knight? I mean, are they truly fearful of their lives? And are they right that their lives are in jeopardy if they do something like that? Yeah, no doubt. Tracking down witnesses on gang cases, murder cases, things like that are the most difficult to do. One of them, a lot of go into hiding because they do not want to be found. And then trying to build a rapport with them and a relationship with them where they can trust you and that you're going to help out. A lot of them are fear, not only for themselves, as Jen said, you know, when they go to prison or when they pass away, that's kind of their right to passage to being a gang member. But they're really worried about their family members because family members usually can't move. In the witness protection program, if we find a witness and they want to cooperate, we give them the opportunity and we will relocate them to an undisclosed location. And a lot of them don't want to leave the area that they are because they're so used to living in that environment and that's where their friends are. So to, to, to really try to get them to commute or to come into court and testify is one of the most difficult things that we have to do. And sometimes we don't succeed at that. But you have to build a rapport. You have to show them even a little bit of respect. Even though they're gang members, they also desire or want mutual respect. So you build that respect with them, but it doesn't happen over one meeting. It can be multiple times meeting with them, getting to know them, getting to know them personally and their family, and how they really can make a difference and take a bad actor like Suge Knight off the street or other criminals. Yeah, you know, I really think most people in everyday walks of life, all of this goes on invisible to the average citizen. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And clearly, people see cruisers driving up and down the street. They see people in uniforms and stuff. And we all appreciate those people that, you know, give a show of force to maintain order and most people interact with officers in traffic situations. I mean, 99% of the public, when they deal with law enforcement, it's a traffic situation or whatever. They don't realize what's going on behind the scenes with people like the two of you who are working silently behind the scenes to fight these criminal elements, to get them off the streets, because What they're doing, whether it's putting together drug rings, theft rings, the things that do victimize the general public, somebody has to be working to push back against that all the time. And that's what you guys are describing right now. And it frankly doesn't get much attention. It just kind of happens silently behind the scenes. And that's why I just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about that, because this stuff goes on 24-7, 365 days a year, year after year. And like here in L.A., for example, in the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, how many investigators are there, George? In the L.A. County DA's office, when I was there as assistant chief, we had 299 investigators. 299 investigators. And I would guess most people would have no idea there were that many investigators working on this stuff around the clock. So there's just a lot that goes on. Yeah, you know, Dr. Phil, most people don't even realize that the district attorney's office has their own police department. You know, they always think that it's just the attorneys prosecuting cases. And we were the fourth largest police agency in Los Angeles County behind LAPD, the sheriffs and Long Beach Police Department. And we only hired detectives or police officers that had prior law enforcement experience, the best that are out there, whether it comes to gangs, homicides, narcotics, organized crime. And we were one of the best organizations in in the country when it came to investigating criminal cases. And as much as we miss you, George, the Bureau is still a really strong set of investigators. 
Dr. Phil, you brought something up that that I wanted to elaborate on, and that is, it's not just about inter, interceding to stop bad behavior. It's also about empowering the public. And in a gang setting, if you can give a neighborhood control over its streets so that people can still sit outside on their front porches, so that kids can still walk to school without being afraid that they're going to get shot, that's a big part of what law enforcement does. And you know, we were talking before about the 8-9 family. That was one of the things that we, in concert with the FBI and with the LADA Bureau, did. We were able to help people understand that they could take their neighborhood back. Really small section of Los Angeles, relatively small, but very deadly gang. So part of what law enforcement does is not just respond to bad behavior, but it's also about trying to empower the people who are compliant and who just want to live in peace and let them know that they can step in and take control of their neighborhood. That's part of what you do when you talk to somebody about coming in and testifying. Because if you think about it, a lot of us drive by traffic accidents all the time and nobody stops, right? It's an inconvenience. Why would I want to be a witness? God, the insurance adjusters are going to call me. What a pain. Why do we do that? You know, what law enforcement does is we try to encourage people to be participants. We recognize what the threats are, but if we can help them find their way to participate in it, then it empowers them. And that has an enormous impact on their quality of life and their feeling of confidence. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because you brought up such a great point, Jennifer. What do you say to people? And I'm not talking about just inner city, but in the neighborhoods. What can people do? Because one of the main themes I've tried to say to people during this quarantine is you're not helpless. One of the biggest stressors that causes people to get depressed, have anxiety or whatever, is if they're in a situation that's negative, such as this virus is floating around, and they feel like there's nothing they can do, they're helpless, they're just sitting there waiting for something bad to happen. And I've tried to communicate to people, that's not the case. You're not helpless. There are things you can do behaviorally. The social distancing, wearing the mask, washing your hands, doing the things that you can do to protect those in your family or your social circle that are vulnerable, they're elderly or have underlying conditions, protecting them, doing things to stem the tide of this thing. You're not helpless. You can determine the outcome of this for yourself. And the same thing is true for our society in general with people that feel like, boy, we're going to hell in a handbasket. We're not going to hell in a handbasket. As a society, we have the ability to take control of our neighborhoods, take control of our streets. And I'm not talking about being vigilantes, going out there and doing crazy things, overstepping our bounds, but just if you see something, say something, having neighborhood watch programs, calling the police when necessary, volunteering what you know, doing things. But what do you say to people about organizing and being actively involved in their community so they don't surrender their streets, surrender the safety of their schools and their streets and their neighborhoods so they can live peacefully? They've got to help and be involved. True? Absolutely. And that's that's exactly what I'm talking about with regard to empowerment. I'm not talking about you go to a class, you get a badge, you get a degree, you know, you get deputized. I'm really talking about taking responsibility and recognizing that the personal toll may be inconvenience 
in a gang setting, it can be a lot more than inconvenience. But slowly but surely, if you start taking those little steps, the acts of one and then the acts of another, eventually what happens is there's pushback because gangs in particular work in the currency of fear. That's more important than dollars. They empower themselves because of the fear that's perpetuated. And when people stand up and say, I'm going to participate, I'm going to talk, that is a real impediment because you're breaking the power cycle. The opposite side of that is also true. When people do step forward and participate, they're empowering themselves to take back their neighborhoods, to say, I'm not afraid of you. Gangs are bullies. Okay, it's the dynamic isn't all that different. They're well armed, they're well financed, they're well organized. But these are organizations that can, brick by brick, be dismantled by the people that they victimize if people will be given the environment and the tools to do that. That was what witness protection was all about. It was about saying to somebody, you are in the wrong place at the wrong time and you're being victimized. And we're going to do something about that. We're going to help you move. Can you imagine? I mean, think about all the inconveniences of having to move, right? None of us voluntarily move. Usually we do it once or twice in our lifetime. And it's a large scale pain when we're doing it. Right. These are people who are forced into that environment because they were at the wrong place, the wrong time, and they're trying to do the right thing. So for us, at least, witness protection was the least we could do. But part of that wasn't just moving them to another place. It was supporting them. It was putting them in an environment where they could succeed. In virtually every case where witness protection was unsuccessful, it was because the person that we had moved went back to the old neighborhood. And you could understand that, you could empathize with it, but you'd heave a big sigh because that was a surefire road to disaster. So over the years, the program has gotten better about relocating people into environments where they can be more successful. And what you find is they become empowered by the fact that they broke away from something that they were afraid of. And that's an enormous step. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. That is a big step. And when you see things where people do get organized and they stand up together, it makes a huge difference. And I want to be clear that we're not talking about becoming vigilantes taking the law into your own hands, arming yourselves, having a shootout with somebody that's coming in and trying to bully you. That's where you pick up the phone, you call the police, you tell them ahead of time, you cooperate with them so they can be there when the next thing is going to happen. 
because that's the kind of help that you guys need. And that's what I want people to be aware of. Is it scary sometimes? Of course it is. But it's the difference between dealing with that fear on a short-term basis or living under intimidation for the entire rest of your life by somebody running bully roughshod over you, which is a completely different situation. And again, I have to be careful and make sure I always say I'm not asking people to be vigilantes and take the law into their own hands. You know, we look at what happened in Georgia recently with the young man that was gunned down in the streets. And, you know, I'm not asking y'all to take a position on something that you weren't there, you don't know all the facts on, but there we had citizens shotgun a young man in the streets at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, and now three citizens have been charged with murder. We're not asking people to do that. That's not what we're asking people to do, right? In that situation, if they felt like something was going on, all they had to do was pick up the phone and call the police, right? Well, there's that, and there's also the notion that we need to get away from this idea that people who provide information are snitches and that that's a pejorative. Those people are heroes. If that were my kid that got killed, I'm going to applaud anybody who walks in the door and provides information because there were people who were there that saw what was going on. And as as the victim surviving family, the first thing I want is for somebody to come up and tell me what happened. And yet the gang counts on that fear to keep control over the information so that people don't want to come forward. And that's that's where people can be empowered by just making a phone call, by just talking to police, by just providing information. There, there's a lot that can be done that doesn't require that you even leave your house. But you can't sit by and, and let benign neglect take over because whether it's gang members or public corruption the same outcome is going to happen. And that's that you are empowering the bad guys when you don't stand up and say, I can do something to make this stop. I may not be the entire solution, but I'm going to move it one step forward. And Dr. Phil, I think you said it best at the beginning. If you see something, say something. And one big thing about is also community policing is the officers that are on the streets getting out into the community, just not driving down the street, but actually getting out and talking to gang members, starting to build a relationship with them so that they also trust the police as well. Most gang members don't want to trust the police. They see them. They might take off running, you know, go into the house, whatever the case may be. But you have to build a report, get to know them and get their information, get to know them, you know, as what they're doing on the streets. And or not, eventually someone will start talking to you because I do believe, Dr. Phil, not all of them want to be gang members, but it's because of the society, the neighborhood they live, it's a way of survival. If they don't do it, then they're going to look down upon. Gangs have started to evolve as well. And Jen can probably talk this a little bit as well. In the old days, we always were looking at gangs as doing narcotics and robberies and street robberies and things like that. But they have evolved into human trafficking. It's now a whole different way for them to make money. And they can go ahead and, and, and trade these females and males as a commodity. And so gangs are starting to evolve and they're evolving all the time. And so you have to get out there. And so the first, the, the people on the streets, the officers in, in, in the uniform really make a big difference in building those bonds and relationships. And then, as you said, you see something, they say something, you can call, be anonymous. And it gives then law enforcement officers an opportunity then to start their investigations and get out into the community, whether in undercover fashion, 
We could use cameras. There's all types of technology we can use nowadays to help break break this cycle and break these gangs. George, you've actually been undercover in organized crime situations. Is that as scary as it sounds? It is. Being undercover, um, you, you have to almost build this other personality of who you are. And, of course, you have to have what we call backstopping, a different name. Where do you live? You have to have the story because they're going to ask you those questions. And I remember when I was working undercover narcotics on the street, a partner of mine went into a restaurant. We were getting ready to buy a, a kilo of cocaine, and they actually patted us down, frisked us down. And unfortunately, um, they missed the wire for them. And it was the scariest probably time of my life, Dr. Phil. In the old days, wires were the kind of the old harness that you put over your shoulders and had underneath your, your, your side jacket. And they literally walk in and pat you down. And they literally missed the wire that day. And eventually the case resulted in a good investigation in this restaurant that was selling cocaine out, out the back door. Um, but, Dr. Phil, it's got to be one of the most scariest things. Your blood pressure goes off the charts. You don't sleep well. And it does t- take a toll on your body, take a toll on your mind. Um, but it's something that law enforcement has to do to be able to take back, take down some of these bad criminals. But you know, back in the day, as you say, these wires were not tiny. I mean, how, how do you do that? How do you get square in your mind? I'm going to put something the size twice as big and twice as thick as a cell phone. I'm going to strap it onto my body and walk in knowing they're going to pat me down. What do you, how do you do that? You know, you, back then you didn't think about it. All you knew is you were going in to do an investigation to take down these bad criminals that were really um, taking a toll on society by peddling drugs out the back door or on the streets and you just get back then you didn't think about it you didn't know that was the best technology we had at the time and so you went in and you did your best and hopefully they didn't pat you down but that was the first time i had ever been patted down and all my other cases where i worked undercover they never knew i had the wire it could have been on the street you know they're not going to pat you down but people see the movies right where they have you take your shirt off or undress so they can see if you're wearing the wire um oh but God. back then dr phil just what you did that came with the job oh came with the God. territory and we all did it and we did it because we loved the job and we loved helping people out you never got caught with a wire i never did dr phil i was very fortunate in my career i was never caught with a wire so you just have a crooked face what can we say <laughs> everybody believed you you look crooked that's all i can say well i look a little different now dr phil i look back there i had long hair i had a beard i changed my appearance all the time i'm a little more clean cut nowadays <laughs> Yeah, right. Okay, I got you. You know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I've seen the pain that this causes because, you know, Robin and I are both, for better or worse, certainly recognizable, and we get caught up in these fraud situations with clickbait on the internet where People will steal our identities and they will come up with these phony products and associate our names with them and tell people they're getting these products for free. But you have to give us your credit card number, but they're really for free. And then if you want them, then we'll start billing your credit card. And then there's no way the people can ever cancel, and they prey upon elderly people, often on fixed incomes, who don't have the money to 
pay and they start hitting their credit cards for eighty, hundred and eighty dollars a month. They can't find a way to get it stopped, et cetera. We get these heartbreaking letters from people that some of them actually think it's us. And we've actually done television shows where we say, people, please, this is not us. There was one the other day, they had Dr. Oz and I were supposedly selling some new miracle thing. I've sent out hundreds of cease and desist letters. We've actually filed suits to shut some of them down where they're defrauding these people. So, you know, there's street crime and then there's this white collar type fraud crime. And this adds up to hundreds of millions of dollars a year defrauding the public, criminally defrauding the public out of big dollars is big criminal enterprise. Talk about Dr. that Phil, if you because guys would what a you're bit. talking about is something that really makes people really feel unsafe. And I go back to, you know, part of what we try to do in law enforcement is let it is give people some sense of safety. Um, I very often go out and and do trainings and lectures and seminars. And I usually start off by asking everybody, how many people have been the victim of identity theft of some sort? How many have been the victim of fraud? Almost everybody in the room raises their hand. How many report it to law enforcement? Maybe five or 10. How many of those cases went to court? If there's one, it's the anomaly. So what you're talking about is something that I think undermines people's sense of safety and their sense of faith in the system to protect them because you have means and you have people who can help you with this, the victims don't have any recourse other than their credit card companies. And the people who are perpetuating this just don't care a whit about either one of you. These frauds go on and on and on. It's interesting to me because I often say we should really stop looking at fraud in terms of the dollar values, because that's really like counting bullets at a murder scene. What fraud really does is it undermines people's sense of safety, their sense of possession, their sense of security. And it's really hard to do battle with. The people that commit it are motivated by money and they don't give a wit who they hurt in the process. But I have seen people's lives literally destroyed because they've been the victims of identity theft or the victims of some other form of fraud. So it's really wrong in my mind to sort of make this antiseptic by talking about the dollars. Fraud's frankly just corrosive. It's a huge danger. And don't think for a moment the gangsters aren't out there committing fraud because they'd much rather sit on their couch with an iPad and commit fraud than go out and jack somebody for a hundred bucks at a gas station. The risks are a lot lower and the rewards are a lot higher. What are the biggest frauds that are being perpetrated on society at this point? I mean, it, this has really changed with the advent of the internet, right? I mean, since we've gotten the World Wide Web, which I call the Wild Wild Web, that's made it much more prolific than it was before, clearly, because access is, is so much greater. What are the biggest things that you guys are seeing now that you're having to fight the most passionately against? George is in a better position to talk about what California is facing because the Department of Insurance addresses so many different types of fraud. 
Yeah, so I mean, Dr. Phil, what we're seeing, and as you know, on a recent show with you regarding even the COVID-19 scams that are out there, you know, and so people get emails every day and they're they're just, a lot of them are the elderly people, they're sitting home alone, they click on that email just to be able to read it and all of a sudden uh, they've opened up their computer to these crooks to be able to install some type of malware so they can go ahead and download all their personal information. And the sad thing is these people have worked their entire life, built up their little nest egg to help them survive through retirement. And what ends up happening is these people take everything from them. They destroy them to the point where these people sometimes have to give up their house, have to give up their personal belongings, and now they're out on the street. Or if they don't have a family member to go live with, where do they go? And so, you know, we look at robberies, you know, strong arm robberies, robbery of banks and things like that. And guess what? People don't want to do that anymore because if you do a bank robbery, you're going to federal prison for a long time. And as Jennifer said, what a great way is just to use the Internet to go in, click on, you know, get somebody to click down a, a certain you know, website and all of a sudden they have all your information and steal all your money and you have nothing left. And we see this a lot with the elderly. We kind of investigate those in the Department of Insurance now um, where people get them assigned for a life insurance policy. They'll, they'll take that, they'll flip that, they'll steal all their money. And we've had people up to lose up to a million dollars of money that they have saved their entire career and now have nothing and nowhere to go. Okay, wait, 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 wait. You're talking about somebody clicking on an email and in the end, they wind up losing a million dollars? Sure. There, There's an elder abuse case. Well, not, like, not, not, not. Renee Rose from the DA's office heads our elder abuse um, division. And one of the things, Dr. Phil, that I think we have to look at is many of our elderly are part of the great generation, right? These are people who trust other people. They work on the honor system. So if they get a notice that says, Dr. Phil is, is selling some product, they believe that because their generation believes in the truth of how people communicate. And it's particularly insidious because these are people that have worked tirelessly. They've survived world wars. They've survived all kinds of changes. And here they are in their later years in life, and they are among our most vulnerable. Why? Because their social value is that you trust people, that people don't lie, that when you get sent a letter, that really is the truth, that when somebody sends something on the internet, that person's not going to lie. They're telling me the truth. That's the part that gets exploited, that just breaks my heart and fires me up. And our generation believes if you put it in writing and it's on the internet, they tend to believe who would do that, that that's the truth. Now, explain this. Let's get in the weeds on this a little bit. So an email comes in, a text or an email, and it's from somebody you don't know, and it says there's always a preview on the email that gives you just enough to know a little bit about what it's about. And it might say something like, urgent, must respond, or whatever. And it baits people into clicking on it. And, and George, you're saying that when they click on that and it opens up, then there's malware that now lets them into their computer. Explain what you mean by that. 
So when you get those emails, and you and I talked about it before, Dr. Phil, government agencies are typically not going to send you an email asking for information. Bank institutions aren't going to ask for your personal information. That's probably the number one thing to look for when you get an email. No company that you're dealing with is going to ask for any personal information on that email. That's why you're allowed to go into the internet, put in your own passwords and things like that. What happens when they send these emails, and as we were talking about the elderly, they're sitting there and they see urgent and they go, oh my God, I have to click on this. They click on it. But what they really need to do is hover above where that email came from. And if you hover above that email on your computer, it will actually show you where the true website is coming from. A lot of times it could be from a foreign country and it'll kind of show that. So as I said, when you see that, do not click on that because then what will happen is then they're going to ask for some other uh, other, um, identifying information, could ask your bank account, could ask for your credit card. And again, as, as Jennifer said, we grew up in a society, even with, with my parents, I, you know, if we shook someone's hand and you made a deal, you stuck to that deal, you know, and we trust people. Nowadays, they are taking advantage of the most vulnerable people uh, through, throughout across this country and our community every day. And I've told people this over and over, when you get that email, just delete it. A company will not reach out to you, whether it's a healthcare professional, the IRS, FBI, anybody, if they really want you, Dr. Phil, they're going to come and knock on your door. You and I have joked about that, but they're going to come knock on your door if they want to interview or talk to you. So when you see that, when you get the email, you'll see who it's come from. So if you take the little mouse and put it on your computer and just put it on that email or click on that email, it'll show you the true emails. For example, you could send me an email that says Dr. Phil. So if I take my little arrow and I, and I click on the Dr. Phil, all of a sudden it may say, Dr. Phil from Nigeria, Dr. Phil from Russia. And I'm going to go, well, Dr. Phil's not in Russia or Nigeria. He's here in Los Angeles. And so that right away would tell me this is not the real Dr. Phil. And why would Dr. Phil be sending me an right, email? So when you, when you see that, you know, okay, it's time to bail. So you delete that and you're out. And But if you open it, then now they're into your computer is what you're saying. Yes, it gives them an opportunity to get right into a computer and install. We call it a Trojan, a virus, a malware of some sort. And there's new ones coming out all the time. And once that's installed, they can overtake your computer and they have access to everything on there. And believe it or not, what happens a lot in institutions is once that's been done, Dr. Phil, now they want a ransom. Now you're going to have to pay a serious ransom to even get your, your computer technology back to your company, to your house. They hold you for ransom. As Jennifer was just saying, so often people, particularly in in my generation, I mean, I've got a 10-year-old granddaughter that can zip around the internet like uh, the computer like you wouldn't believe. And I've often said, young people have the knowledge but not the wisdom to be on the internet. We have the wisdom but not the knowledge. We don't know how to navigate it, but maybe have the sense to know better. They have the knowledge but not the sense. And that's hopefully those two can combine at some point. But people in my generation just don't know because, as Jennifer says, there's that trust built in that people just don't do that. So that's a big fraud element that's out there. And it shocked me. George and I, if anybody missed it when we were chatting recently in a brief conversation. There are people showing up on, you were saying, front porch selling COVID-19 insurance, uh, phony. And while there's somebody on the front porch 
pitching COVID-19 insurance, there's somebody at the back door breaking into the damn house. That's a double scam. How, how slimy is that? So, so true, Dr. Phil. Or they're selling you a test that's not good, or they're sell, selling, selling you some you know, drug that they're saying is going to solve COVID-19. Um, these scam people show up at your house, as I told you, Dr. Phil, do not open your door. Um, they're there to scam you and take it. As you said, there's someone at the front door. Or, or the first thing they'll say, Dr. Phil, is, oh, by the way, can I use your restroom? Two people walk in, one starts talking to one, gets their attention away. The other person's in your bedroom stealing all your jewelry, your money, whatever else they can find. Yeah, and it's sad that we can't do that anymore. You just can't let people in your house. But that's the last thing in the world you want to do, certainly in this day and time. But let me change the subject a little bit. You guys mentioned human trafficking. You know, there's so much more to this that I'm going to break this conversation into two because I don't want to hurry this very important conversation as it happens with bringing people in, putting them into slave labor, safe houses, threatening to murder their families if they don't comply, and what we as citizens can do to watch for this, report this, and help get these victims out of this terrible, terrible circumstance and situations. We have to be proactive to do this. And I'm so proud that we've had an opportunity to learn so much from Jennifer Lentz, Snyder, and George Mueller about all of this. But... There's a whole nother chapter to all of this human trafficking and rehabs, drug and alcohol rehabs, and a huge fraud scheme that's going on with sober living. And this is such a big chapter of this human trafficking that it needs to be a whole standalone episode of fill in the blanks. So I'm going to break this conversation right now and save that for next week. So breaking right now and just giving you a big tease that you're not going to believe what's happening to some of our most vulnerable loved ones when they're at rock bottom reaching out for help. Now, you know how passionate I am about the battle against addiction, and we are in the middle of the opioid epidemic a huge opioid epidemic, and I am so concerned that as we are emerging from quarantine, as we are turning this world back on, all of these opioid addicts, all of these other drug addicts, they didn't just go on hold while we were in quarantine. They had a problem when it started, and that problem has not gotten better during quarantine, which means as we emerge, there's going to be a huge pinup appetite in need for services when we come out. And I am very concerned about the scams, the frauds that are awaiting those in their most desperate time when they are at rock bottom needing help. And I want to alert everyone to not fall victim to this. So I'm reserving this conversation to stand on its own. And that is on the next Fill in the Blanks.